Hello and welcome to Walkley Talks. I'm Claire Fletcher from the Walkleys. Today's podcast is about narrative and storytelling. We call it The Yarn Spinners. Journalism helps shine a light on injustice and it changes our world for the better, but it can also just be really entertaining. You're about to hear from some of Australia's great storytellers and yarn spinners about the narrative techniques they use to make sure their message resonates with readers, listeners and viewers. This talk was recorded at the State Library of Western Australia on November 2nd. It's part of our journalism festival in Perth called Shining a Light on the Truth. Now here's session moderator Lenore Taylor, who's the editor of Guardian Australia, to introduce the topic and the speakers. Enjoy. We're going to be talking about how journalism uses storytelling, really, and the power and the craft and the art of storytelling with three women who sort of bring different approaches and different skills to storytelling. On my far right, there's Kirsty Melville, who's an award-winning documentary producer with ABC's In Earshot and The History Listen, based right here in Perth. Kirsty's made a lot of radio documentaries that really go for the most complex human stories possible, really. (laughs) Every time I listen to them, you sort of, I'm struck by the difficult subjects that Kirsty picks and how well she tells those stories. She's a finalist in the 2019 Walkley Awards Radio Audio Feature for a wonderful series called The Ghosts of Whitnoon. Here is Helen Pitt, who's a Sydney Morning Herald journalist who's worked as a senior writer, opinion and letters editor, where she began her career there in 1986. She's also worked as a feature writer for The Bulletin magazine and as a TV reporter in Euronews in France. Helen recently published her book, The House, the dramatic story of the Sydney Opera House and the people who made it, and that won the 2018 Walkley Book Award. And on my left, Michelle White is an award-winning journalist with more than 30 years' experience in film, television, radio, print and digital media. She had a long career at the ABC, but she now works for the Community Arts Network. As a woman of proud Yamaji descent, Michelle is committed to telling and sharing stories and facilitating stories that promote and celebrate Aboriginal Australia, and she does that through that role with CAN. So we've got three quite different perspectives on storytelling. I think it's going to be a great conversation. So I'd like to start at the beginning, and anyone can jump in on this. What are the essential elements of a good yarn, of a good story? What's the essence of it? Well, for me, it's always that little spark that I feel when someone says something or I hear something or I read something and I think, oh, I didn't know that. And that's usually where it starts for me. And that might be like a big story that's uncovering something greater or it might just be a comment someone passes about watching makeup artists who run vlogs on YouTube with billions of viewers. You know, it could be anything. But it always starts with that little spark. And then I sort of test that spark. So I start telling people about that. Did you know? Did you know about this? And I start testing if it's well, something... Well, if they'll go, yeah, yeah, yeah. like if it's something I just I didn't know, that I was mm. just being a bit stupid, or if it was just generally something that's not known or if other people find it interesting. So once I've sort of, you know, done that little test, I then start thinking about it a bit more deeply. So for me, it's always paying attention to what interests me and then thinking about why is it interesting? Why should I be doing that story now? And then having to answer those questions before I can take it further. So the other thing is obviously that, so it's that spark, that interest, and then of course the characters. And then you build the rest from there. Helen? Yeah, I think... For a long-form project particularly, there's got to be kind of a heart opening. It's got to really resonate with you because 
I was saying this yesterday at the masterclass I was giving. When you're doing a long-form thing, it is the idea has to be considered. It's a bit like a spouse, you know. You've got to live with it for the rest of your life kind of thing. So you really need to like it from the very beginning. Now, you won't always love it. In fact, you won't like it much at all sometimes. But the thing is, you've got to really have a compulsion to tell you the story. You have to really care about it. You've got to really care and you can hate it because it be so frustrating sometimes. But yes, for me, for example, doing a long-form project, writing a book about the Opera House, it was largely because I'd lived outside of Australia for a long time and I just always got this real sort of heart opening when I flew back into Sydney because it was where I was born and it was the story of my city and I lived abroad in France and America for about 16 years and every time I came back it just really (coughs) tugged at my heartstrings and so when I was actually driving across the Golden Gate Bridge the day in 2008 that I heard that the Danish architect Jorn Utzen who designed the Opera House had died I got that stab an instant recognition in my heart of that is a story kind of only a Sydney cider would know perhaps by extension an Australian, but there I was on the other side of the world and I thought, that is such a sad story, isn't it? The fact that here's this Danish designer who gave Australia its most famous building and he never saw it complete before he died. Just listening to the obit being read on the BBC World Service, I thought, wow, that is an enduring story, isn't it? And I wondered how many people knew it, you know, outside of my my Sydney side of family and the people that were my age and older. And I pitched the idea to Alan and Unwin on the basis of it being a retelling of an old story that maybe people younger than me didn't know because it was many years after the Opera House had opened and it was Jornotsen left under a cloud in 1966. So it was a very old story when he completed it in Australia, but the beginning of it beforehand had been even you know, much longer. So it was really a heart opening for that story for so me. So how much of it relied on bringing the historical story to younger audiences who might not have known about it and how much of it was like the drama of the human stories in the book? Yeah, it was a bit of both actually, Lenore, combining them both because what I had started writing was a bit of like investigative journalism, I think, and then I had to throw that all out and begin again. I took a break and I walked the Camino in France because I just was kind of hitting my head against the, a brick wall. And I picked up this French magazine where Michael Connolly, the author, said that he approaches a story as if it is a movie scene. He describes everything like a movie scene. And I thought, yeah, that's what I need to do. So I actually went back and rewrote it. Did it again. Completely. And Michelle, from your vantage point, because you really... Maybe we should start by asking you how you go about storytelling, because you really work to facilitate others telling their stories, yes. right? So how does, how does stories look from that vantage point? So my work at Community Arts Network does involve facilitating and helping others to tell their stories. And for the last 10 years, I've been working mostly with the Noongar community across the, uh, the eastern and southern Wheatbelt and a little bit here in Perth. And it's a lot of time spent talking to elders and we do art like we tell stories through art so one thing I've actually learned in this job is that there are so many different ways you can tell a story it can be in the form of a poem it can be a song it can be a doll it can be a portrait or it can be an oral history presentation that results in a book or a radio series basically it's you know the world is open to whatever 
wherever we can take it and, and whatever path the elders want us to go down. You were talking about that spark. That's what I find every single time I have the honour and the privilege of sitting down with the elders, is that I'm just sponging up everything that they say and feel this great sense of responsibility in that we have to record these stories so that, you know, it's a legacy project. Can you give us just a couple of examples of the stories you've told and the ways that you've told them, just so people get a yeah, sense of what sure. you do? One project was called um, Gamaling Yarns, and it was a storytelling oral history project in this little country town. And we started off by doing oral history recordings and photography, getting them to take us around to significant places and tell us stories, their histories. Because what we found in working in the wheat belt is that the farming history and the colonial history is well documented, but the role of Aboriginal people in those communities didn't exist. So we wanted to do some truth-telling, and also give those elders who, for many years, through government policies, which I'm sure you're all familiar about, weren't given that space and that opportunity to share their side of history, the chance to record their stories, firstly as a legacy for their families. That was their main motivation, is that they wanted to leave something behind for their kids. And then secondly, to share it with the broader community. And the Gamaling Yarns project that I've just mentioned, that was really quite a profound experience for us because we were doing these workshops and this woman Dallas Phillips, Noongar woman, rocks up and she says, look I've been carrying around this chocolate tin full of slides for 40 years, my mother gave it to me I don't know if they're worth anything or if they're, you know, if they're useful for this project, have a look and we, we opened them up, had a look and her mother, Mavis Phillips, living on the reserve outside of Gamaling, somehow had got hold of a box brownie camera which for a, an Aboriginal family living on a reserve was remarkable. We still don't know how she quite got hold of this. But she documented reserve life from an Aboriginal perspective over about 15 years. So what period? This was in the 40s and up until the 50s. Most of the Aboriginal community in Perth that I've since grown up and met were babies in these photos and nobody sort of knew that they existed and we were like oh my goodness this is incredible brought them here to the library and they came out with their white gloves straight away and started like wanting to document them we we're like oh my goodness that's just been in the boot of my car rolling around for like three weeks coming back from Gamaling and now the Mavis Wally collection exists in this library as a result of us doing that project as well as a an oral history documentary that played on Radio National and a booklet we transcribed. So your stories are also cultural legacy? Absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah 100%. So sometimes stories need to be told, they should be told, but they're really, really difficult to tell. Kirsty, you made a documentary about the sexual abuse of a former partner. I wanted to ask you a few things about that. It was a really harrowing thing to listen to. I'm interested in the first instance about how you approach telling a story that, you know, many people would probably turn away from. Yeah, that was very much at the front of my mind. So just to put that into context, it's my former partner, the father of my now adult son, and we were together for three or four years in my early 20s. And it wasn't until about seven or eight years ago that he came to me to tell me about his horrendous childhood sexual abuse. I had known a fraction of it, but I didn't know the whole story. He came to me then also with a view to me telling his story. So I was really uncomfortable about that. I wasn't, I felt very protective of him. I didn't want him to make himself vulnerable and put himself at risk. But I also just felt a bit uncomfortable about telling the personal story of someone that close to me. <laughs> just felt very fraught. 
So I did discuss all those issues with him. I wasn't convinced he was strong enough to do it. But anyway, I said, look, come, let's just keep sitting on it, keep discussing this with your councillor, but let's talk, come back and talk about this in six months. So six months later, he was still adamant he wanted to do it, so we did it. Now, of course, that was in the middle of all the Royal Commission. There were so many stories of sexual abuse that people, I think, had a bit of, you know, abuse fatigue. And so we had to think, OK, well, if we are going to do this story, how can we tell it in a way that is different, that will engage people, that doesn't turn people away from what is a really devastating piece to listen to? So the way, what we ended up deciding to do, it's my first foray into this form of narrative storytelling. We decided that, as I was discussing this with my EP, what kept popping up was me saying, I just had no idea. When we were together, I had no idea. It explains so much about our relationship. It explains so much about the things he did, the things he didn't do. And now I feel I have this terrible guilt that I wasn't... How could I, who talks to people about these things for a living, who considers myself quite insightful, how could I have missed this? And how could I have been so harsh with him at times when he was suffering so badly and I, I didn't know? So it brought up a lot of grief and trauma for me and also for my son. That was the other factor. My son at the time was about 17 and thinking, how will he cope with this story of his father being made public? So what we decided to do was to harness the power of the personal with that story and that the strength of that story was in Eric and I unpacking our relationship through the lens of his abuse. And that's what we did. So it involved me travelling to spend time with him for six days on his remote property in northern New South Wales. There was no electricity, there was no running water... He was a very damaged, very mentally unwell man. It was one of the hardest six days of my life and gruelling for him. But the upshot was that I got to spend a lot of time in his space, on location, recording him interacting with his environment. And so another technique that we used to engage and to soften the story was to bring the environment in as a character. So the walking through the bush. The walking and... through the bush, his engagement with the animals, the way he talked about the frogs in the pond at night. And I very deliberately left at the very top. He killed me for this. There's a point where, in the very beginning, we're walking through the bush and he does this super loud burp. And I'm like, oh, I'm so going to use that. And he was like, don't you dare. Anyway, I ended up starting the whole program with that, <laughs> which I had so many comments on. But I did that because I wanted to... Precisely because... It was a little bit of levity. Exactly. Yeah. Because it was such a confronting, traumatic journey we're about to go on, I wanted people to acknowledge that it was going to be a bit of a light hand there. Yeah. And just, just quickly, but I'm sort of fascinated by these two other questions that that story brought up were, which I'd like everybody to talk to as well, is like duty of care to the people whose stories we tell, so how that worked out for Eric, and also the times when you become part of the story, which in that story you inevitably did. So just what your thoughts were about those two things. Look, that is always a, something that's first and foremost on my mind, is the mental health of people who are telling the story. It involves me making sure that they are very certain that they want to participate 
me talking to them about the possible pitfalls of that, what some of the things that might happen, particularly now on social media, and are they braced enough for that, find out if they're having counselling in their own right. And then once they're committed, if they are committed, it's then just treating their story like a very fragile treasure and developing a very respectful, meaningful, a meaningful relationship so they don't feel like they're just spilling their guts to me and I'm means walking to away an end for you. and doing whatever I want to do with it, you know. It's got to, for me, and my partner will attest to this, the thing that stresses me out the most afterwards is always what the person thought of the story and if they're happy, I can deal with everything else. It is always just checking in after things go to air, checking in, making sure that people are okay and that they're happy and just, you know, being there if I can and continuing that relationship if I need to. Helen, have you navigated that in your feature writing and editing career, those sorts yeah, of issues? Yeah, certainly throughout, you know, my journalism career, it's, it is a constant concern. And also in this book, I guess the heart of the story is about two families. And there's still a very you know, a bit Shakespearean in a sense in that it's Jorn Utzon whose idea it was to build this building and it was Peter Hall who was the architect who got the unfortunate job to complete the building when he walked away from the New South Wales government after a dispute in 1966. So at the heart of it, there's a, still a very big division in Sydney about the Utzon versus the Hall Opera House. It's still, it's like an old football feud, you know. It's like the Roosters versus the Rabbitohs in our local code. It, it brings up a lot of tension still. So I was very mindful of how the families would react to the retelling of this story because, of course, they've got their own version of events and how they felt let down by the New South Wales government, both sides of the family. So I was very careful in dealing with the Utsons. I met them. It took me a long time to meet. It took me years to get them to trust me too because they had been so badly burnt by Australia, full stop. And so it was really a touchy subject. So I was very careful about how I tried to tell their part of the story and I would run things by them and sometimes they would get upset about, no, that's not how it was. And I would pay attention to that because I really wanted to make sure that the story was retold in the way. Because the height of the tension in 1966 was really a big deal in the time. They were the first kind of like hounded paparazzi people in a sense. So they were treated pretty badly. And then the whole family equally. Now, that is even more of a tragedy. I don't know if any of you know the actual story, but Peter Hall ended up dying drunk and poor at 64 and never really getting the credit that he deserved for completing Australia's most famous building. So this was a real, really touchy subject in his two families. So he lost his first wife in the dispute over the Opera House because she didn't want him to take on the project, and he did. And then he remarried and they lost a child in the second marriage. And there's still tension between both the first and the second Hall families, you know, over the whole retelling of the story. So it was a really touchy subject. But what I made sure I did was I sat down with both families. I made the effort. I drove down to the Southern Highlands where a whole load of Peter Hall's documents had been kept in his son's shed for decades and not touched. And I made sure I read out. I didn't want to show it. To, I wanted to read them out 
to them because I wanted to make sure that they were okay with it. And I was really touched because they were all in tears and that was what I wanted to do. You know, I, I hadn't meant to upset them but I wanted to know that they felt that their father was being accurately depicted and they did. And the various families were okay with the finished product? Like they were. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the Utzon family maybe less so than the Halls because, in a sense, I guess the mists of time, it's become a. It's like a mythology. Almost, yeah, yeah, there is. There definitely is. And, and that's what my publisher had said look, we don't want to recreate that mythology. We want to be telling it as it was. And, and he was really strict. My publisher's Richard Walsh, who was a young man at the time and knew the Utsons very well. And he said, we're not going to take sides on this. We are telling both sides of the family tale. And he was really strict in bringing me back on that every time I may have won either side. So, mm-hmm. yeah. And, Michelle, you have a complete duty of care, right? Like, you're facilitating and telling communities absolute stories, like the most precious things about them. How do you approach that? How does it look from your point of view? I, I suppose after you know so many years of telling other people's stories, when you're doing it in a community context, it, there is such a heightened level so of what's responsibility. what's different about that from, say, telling a story as a journalist? Well, I suppose with my work with elders is that I, I find that they are very generous in telling their stories, but it's also, you know, it's ripping the Band-Aid off. It's making them face and talk about things that are really traumatic. And the duty of care around that is you actually have to make sure that there are mechanisms in place to support people through that process. And, yeah, you just you can't expect people to just spill and then you take your recorder and you, you go away and all's well and good. Like, so we work deeply in community. And before we get to an oral history session, we've probably spent a couple of months in that community building up a relationship with the people that we're going to do the recordings with. And then it doesn't end there. The relationship continues afterwards as well because there's usually some creative outcome that you're working towards. So it's, it's a really long process. And I'm always slightly terrified going into it because I know it is so Has there precious. Ever been, have there ever been issues? Or? Absolutely, especially when you're dealing with contested histories as well. Yeah, we've, we've had major projects. I won't go into too much detail, but one oral history project we were doing in the southwest started off with the whole family involved through the well-meaning process of collecting these stories, a rift was formed in the family side of the family pulled out completely and wanted to extract all of the content that we'd spent a year working on towards this book and then the other side of the family said well you know we don't want all of our content just shelved because of them so yeah it was honestly it just felt like united nations peace negotiations trying to get and and they didn't speak to each other for about two years and we had to completely redo the book and then we had to do a launch with one side of the family but also letting the other side of the family know what was going on and then so were they both still in it at the end no no we respected the family that wanted to withdraw their content and reworked the book just to focus on that family and then after it was launched we invited them to the launch everyone to come along and they said they didn't want to we had the launch it was beautiful they saw how lovely the book was the family's now reconciled and they've come back to us and asked if they can do phase one of the book (laughs) you have to get a thick skin as well like it's not just yeah there's a lot of anger that comes at you as well when you're negotiating these things and be prepared to be chipped regularly by lots of people. So we've been talking about stories that are traumatic and full of drama and whatever, but sometimes we also tell positive stories. And I don't know, in my experience, that sometimes 
even more difficult to tell in an authentic way because it's kind of easy for positive stories to come across sounding kind of a bit like spin, you know, yeah. or a bit like PR. So, yeah. and I mean, I know in your work you do also tell positive stories from communities and or stories about language and mm. how do you go about those kinds of stories to okay. well, make look, them really sing? Look, we do them anyway because first motivation is to give them back to the community and do it for the community. But if you can actually then get other media to pick it up and share that story, then that's an absolute bonus. And one project I've just finished launching and I've got something here to show you. It's a language program, okay? So we've been doing language workshops across the great southern region of Western Australia. And that's because in the last census there are less than 450 people who speak Noongar and probably only 1%, a handful of people who can speak it fluently. So it's a critically endangered language. There are lots of initiatives happening in community to revive language. It's a hard story to sell. It's a hard story to get media to pick up because, you know, people will feel like they've done it before or, you know, okay, once we've said it's an endangered language, where do we go from here? So trying to be a little bit creative. We're doing a project on community where we're teaching language through songs and that's because Noongar is actually a really lyrical language and it's much easier to learn to speak it if you sing it and also because we wanted to leave a legacy behind in the communities where we're working and I keep saying that word legacy it's sounding a bit twee now but but we do we want Noongar kids to grow up hearing songs in their own language so we worked with families to help them write their own little simple lullabies so that's embedded in that community and they will continue to sing those songs to their families. Okay, so to try and get this into the broader community because it's not just about the Aboriginal community learning language, everyone should be invested in ensuring that our Indigenous languages don't become extinct. So we translated Twinkle Twinkle Little Star into Noongar. This is the song sheet that we created. It's so easy and beautiful to learn. We got one of the best Noongar singers, Gina Williams and Guy Gauss, to perform the song. And then we made it into a video. And thank you to The Guardian. They ran the video. And for three days after that, everywhere I went, people were saying, oh, my goodness, we saw it in The Guardian. So we made this video to screen on the major screens in Perth every night so that we send the city off to sleep in Noongar. And the subtitles are up there. It's really easy to learn. And we thought, that's just planting that little seed there of getting the general public to understand just how beautiful this language is and how important it is for all of us to make sure that we preserve it for future generations. Did either of you have any thoughts on positive storytelling? Am I being too cynical? (laughs) I don't have a huge repertoire of positive stories, (laughs) sadly, because they are very fun to do. They are actually hard to do. I remember once a million years ago, I did a story about laughter clubs, you know, like laughter yoga. Yeah. And that was hard because it's hard to do 28 minutes of meaningful conversation about laughter clubs, but it was great audio. I think when you are trying to do something like that, well, for me, it always got to pass the test of will it it sustain 28 minutes anyway? And why am I doing this story? If I can't answer those fundamental questions, then I just can't do the story, even if it is positive. If we get past that point, then the reason I'm doing the story is because there's something new or because there's some character who is just extraordinary and it becomes more of a character piece. And so that's how you find your way into that story and that's how you use the hook. Helen? Well, Michelle keeps talking about oral histories, which the Opera House has many of, and they're a government institution, right? So it's a bit like let's tell the really positive story about the making of the Sydney Opera House. It was so fabulous, wasn't it? All really, like, like completely glossed over what the real, you know, heart of the story was. And so when I did 
start talking to the archivist at the Opera House because what I kind of the way I approached it was I was thinking it more as an unauthorized biography, if you like, of the Opera House. So I didn't really necessarily want to involve them too much because I thought I'd get sold the PR spin, which is indeed quite common with a government institution. So I asked for access to the oral histories and there's a huge list of them and and I was a bit bamboozled because there were so many but I had this extraordinary stroke of good luck in the woman that typed them all out was Sydney Morning Herald and so because I was the editor of the letters page at the time I put in a little weekly postscript on a Saturday anyone got any good you know Sydney Opera House stories and weirdly, this woman had been in hospital for three or four months with emphysema and gets home and her neighbours had kept all the weekend papers. So months after I'd put the call out, she emails me and says, I am the one that typed them all up. I can tell you where the skeletons are buried. So she told me which were the really meaty, like really kind of negative stories about which, you know, not negative but really interesting Substantial. And so because, again, it's a government institution, you can say, I don't want anyone to have access to my oral history, which, of course, all the best ones were William Davis Hughes, who was a public works minister at the time. I had to write to the Opera House. You have to ask for approval even after they died. So I got it and she was right. It was, it was the best one. You know, it was definitely worth listening to. And, you know, just the vehemence with which he spoke... Years later about Woodson, there's actually a paragraph I was trying to find in here because Bob Carr told me, you know, there's ones that you need to listen to too, but he couldn't remember, you know, which were the good ones. But Bob Carr met this William Davis Hughes in 2002 at a Central Coast business, you know, rotary group or something or other like that. And so... Carr had always really loved the Utzon story and he was the one that actually, actually renegotiated the kind of rapprochement with the family. But anyway, he talks about going to speak to this Rotary Club on the Central Coast and there's this old bloke that sort of walks out from them and he's telling the story about how happy he is to have been the man that was in charge of the rapprochement. But he says in the audience, not everyone was happy about this turn of events, however. William Davis Hughes, the old man in the corner, confronted Carr about the re-engagement with Utzon. And then he called Joe Straczynski, who was on the Opera House charts. He was also harangued in a 45-minute call. I did Utsun a favour, Hughes told Straczynski. He was like a dog you have to take out the back and shoot to take him out of his misery. <laughs> I mean, I couldn't believe how much he how hated him still. Vicious. Yeah, yeah, still. It's extraordinary. We're in an environment at the moment where we're just overloaded with information. There's so much information. And I'm interested in your views about how the techniques of storytelling can steer us through that. You know, I'm interested in the... There's a, like a re-emergence, a reinvigoration of long-form journalism, podcasts and audio just thrown open to the three of you. Is storytelling, like the art of storytelling, more important now than ever? I think it's more valued than it has been in a long time. When I started in radio in 1993... It was like the poor cousin to television and all of my fellow graduates were all, you know, off hunting for jobs in TV and I just, you know, settled into Radio National and we were just, you know, (laughs) everyone was off doing all these fancy pants things. But it's really come into its own and the thing I've always loved about radio is the ability to be nimble and to be able to just be on the spot 
and be relatively unobtrusive to be able to do everything on your own, to have control of that process so completely editorially, and to be able to evoke the most nuanced emotions and feelings and shifts in perspective through just the subtleties of the voice. And because you listen to radio often, and particularly now, people are listening to radio so often with headphones or earplugs in, it's a very intimate experience in a way that watching something isn't. And so there's a great power in it that people have recognised. I think the major shift for us as storytellers has been that shift to the first-person narrative storytelling, which I sometimes love and often have a problem with. I think that for many years, the Australian storytelling tradition was very much based on the European model, which was almost to remove yourself as the narrator and just to have your talent apparently effortlessly weave their own story, <laughs> but with a lot of art behind it. But it, you took yourself out of the story as much as possible to let people have their own voice and to tell their own story. Whereas now it feels a little, to me, like it's gone too far in the other direction where the storyteller is there kind of completely directing you, not letting you sit in a moment and come to your own conclusion. You're kind of being told that. So I'm a little wary of the, that. The gratuitous insertion of the storyteller when it's sort yeah. of not in the context of the story. I, I think there's a happy medium. And I think, you know, there's some of the most brilliant radio or audio podcasts I've listened to are first-person narrative yeah. pieces. So I'm not... I just think you need to use it judiciously. And I feel like it has swung back too much the other way. Yeah. Mm -hmm. the, look, just to quickly, the other thing I had, do have... One thing, I have very mixed feelings about the explosion of audio and the democratisation of it. I think it's a wonderful thing that people have access to this technology and platforms to share their stories. But I think what can get lost is a respect for the art and the craft mm -hmm. of it. And I get very frustrated when I listen to, you know, three-hour-long interview mm -hmm. podcasts that clearly need an editor and a lot about grandstanding and... I just feel like we need to kind of keep that precious and respectful. But won't the market sort that out? Like, not many people no, are going to no, listen no. to three well, hours of grandstanding interviews, are they? That's not going to get much... Well, you see, there's the thing. It's like, well, what do you go for? It's just the age-old argument. Do you pump out what people want, what they're listening to, some of which is brilliant and some of which is average, or do you work on keeping that craft a craft as well and having both? And I... I think there is a space for both. I just think there's, at the moment a lot of people don't understand how much craft goes into doing those, sure, sure. the best of it well. Helen, what do you think? Where do you think storytelling is at at well, this point in the media? Obviously, I, I heard somewhere recently that people are downloading more podcasts and they're listening to their own playlists. So, yes, obviously it's popular and even like old newspaper platforms like my own, the Sydney Morning Herald, have podcasts and they are increasingly well listened to but it's sort of interesting I guess because I've been the opinion editor and a journalist at the same time I've always been kind of like you're talking about there's a way of telling the story where you insert yourself in it and there's a way of doing it more like a he said she said reporter and I was trying to do that with my book and in the last chapter I as a chapter called rapprochement and I was trying to put everything in the context of the story as the Opera House sits in Australia today. And then I mentioned, you know, my own experience and why I loved the building. And my editor said, well, that's clearly the first chapter. Let's take that right forward and 
make that the first chapter. And I felt a little bit uncomfortable because I thought, this isn't a narrative about me. She said, no, but it's about you as a Sydney cider, and everyone as a Sydney cider can relate to that. So there was the reordering of the piece. And it's become sort of expected and Indeed. accepted. Indeed. Then certainly when I started in journalism, the first person perpendicular was the last thing you ever put in But a story. now you'd be hard-pressed to find. Look, you didn't even have a dinkus, a headshot, you know, yeah. when we were starting in journalism. That was not – you earned that after 30 years as a newspaper journalist and, you know, it was a huge mark of respect. But that's not the way I it is. I remember having days. one early on that I then kept for about 30 years. <laughs> <laughs> Good idea to have the one from 1986 still, isn't it? Yeah. Do you, what's your view on where storytelling is at now? Okay, well, my next project is an elder storytelling project with... It's called Buddhia's Awakening, Elders Talking, and it's inspired by me sitting on the external reference group for the City of Perth's Reconciliation Action Plan, where they've got this really feisty, spunky group of ten elders who basically... You know, years ago weren't even allowed into the city but now go to the top floor of Council House and basically tell them exactly what they want to happen across the city of Perth. And I've been sitting in these meetings, it's the best part of my month going to these meetings, and listening to the stories that they're telling that inspire what they're, they're, the actions that they're driving, the change that they want. And through these meetings I was like, we've got to do a storytelling project and capture what's driving these decisions because in 50 years time when the things that they're asking for are just accepted across Perth we need something that we can look back on and go this is the moment where these strong elders got up and basically bossed council into giving them back Harrison Island or having language just embedded across you know dual naming across the city those kinds of initiatives so I went to the elders you know I have to get their permission first to do it and then I said to them how do you want to tell these stories and they're all pretty sort of cluey they want to do podcasts because they want the general public to hear what they're saying. They want to do short videos for Facebook, because they're all on Facebook, and that's how their mob shares everything. <laughs> and they want a book. And I was like, that, you know, you sure you want to do, you know, it's pretty expensive to make a book? And they're like, no, absolutely, because they're all going to carry them in their backpacks, and everywhere they go, they're going to sell the books to people. So <laughs> that's my distribution sorted, the elders doing it. Oh, yeah, so next year that's going to be happening. I'm going to put two questions together and put them to each of you. What's the story you're proudest of in your career and what's the story you found hardest to tell? Oh, it's probably a tie. The Storm, which is the one I was talking about earlier. So the hardest to tell or the proudest or both? The hardest to tell, but also I'm proud of it because I'm just proud of it for a lot of reasons. Yeah, you should yeah. be. It's for amazing. what I did for our family and for his mother and for him. And so I'm proud of that. But also the story that's the ghost of Whittenoom that went to air earlier this year, which... Do you want to just quickly talk about that? Because it was quite an amazing story and it was going back. Like we told, you know, the Whittenoom story had been told, but you went back after the event yeah, and looked so at... I think just back to that kind of thing about how you know when a good story is going to be a story and when you get that spark. I was with my partner up at the Karajini Experience in April last year and we were camping on the airstrip and we were sitting around one morning and one of the elders, Trevor Parker, was sitting with us and talking about his brother Maitland who has mesothelioma. And so... They were just talking, I was sort of sitting back and listening and, and Trevor said, you know, I just don't know, I don't understand why Maitland's sick and I'm not. I used to pick up the asbestos and chew it, like chewing gum, and I'm okay and it's just not fair. And I just thought, I heard that and I just thought, oh, wow. 
And then we got talking more and he started talking about how well, all the Aboriginal people used to ride on the back of the asbestos trucks, like public transport, to get around from stations back to home, see family, get around, and they'd just be sitting there, whole families, on top of these jute bags of asbestos. And so then the conversation developed to be that, you know, the, there was just a huge number of Aboriginal people in the Pilbara who had died from asbestos-related diseases. And I just thought, gosh, I thought I knew a lot about Wittenoom. I'd worked on a story about Wittenoom. I knew about the kind of the new wave of renovations and so on, and I'd never heard these stories. And then, again, I did that test of, is it just me that's ignorant, that doesn't know their stories? Started telling my friends, started telling people. People had no idea, so I thought, OK... And so that story, and I think, again, so the, bit, the nub of that story is that there is still many, 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 many tonnes of asbestos tailings in Wittenoom Gorge. And the Bunjima people, whose country it is, have very limited access to much of their country. It's been taken up by mining, by pastoral land, by national parks, and this one little, one of the very small parts of their country that they do have access to they shouldn't be accessing because it's so toxic and you all know the risks of, of asbestos. And so it's just so profoundly unfair and unjust that they can't have you know, rightful access to their country. And so I just I feel really proud of that story because it felt like a fresh take on something that a lot of people didn't know, even though you know, all the Aboriginal crew knew that story. Mm. And I also just felt very proud of it because the main hero of that story, Maitland, was very happy with it and that was the main thing for me. Helen? Well, you know, it's my book because look how thick it is. I can't even <laughs> believe I, you know, I don't even, can't even believe I finished it. You know, it took me 10 years to write, really, from idea of pitch to the publication date. And, you know, when I began, I sat at the Mitchell Library, the State Library in New South Wales, and I just did, you know, little search for names, including Opera House in title, and there were, like, 279 or something like that. And that, I was thinking, what are you kidding? Like, why am I going to do that? This, why would my take on this building be any different to any of the others? So I got a bit disheartened, and then I started to think, no, no, you know, stay with it. You've got a different way of looking at it. And, you know, I tried to use through my journalist's eyes and recounting how it was today. And then one of the things was taking myself to Denmark was really important twice because there was this eight-metre-long archive of Utzon's letters. It was eight metres... Like, it was in eight a library, eight metres of folders of personal correspondence that Jorn Utzon had... His family had donated in January 2018, so it was a decade after his death, and I thought, oh, this is going to be gold. I thought it would be worth trawling, and there I'm crazily going through it. I spent several days just asking the guy in, at the local library, it's in the local archives of the Utzon Centre in the town that he was born in, and I just kept unearthing all these great treasures that only meant something to me and maybe to you as Australians, like the personal correspondence between him and Gough Whitlam that was filed under Cough Whitlam, C-O-U-G-H. <laughs> I mean, only I could get as excited about it because I was so obsessed with the story by then. So I guess I'm very proud because I kept... I had a lot happen to me in that decade and I kept on with this project 
The question is, what's the hardest story that you've done? I wrote a piece on grief in the light of the Stuart Kelly death, who Stuart Kelly was the second son of Ralph Kelly, whose first son, Thomas Kelly's one-punch drunk death, led to the Sydney lockout laws, which, whatever you think about them, have really changed the shape of Sydney. And my own experience is that my husband died when my son was two and I'd lost my own parents. And I tried to imagine how it would feel for the Kelly family because I I could understand a lot of what they were going through, I think, at the time. And the result of that, I felt very... It was very raw exposing myself and my son like that, but I've since become very close to the Kelly family, as thanks, and so I'm very grateful for having done that. Michelle? And for me, the hardest and most memorable is a personal story that I shared last year as a part of the Every Family Has a Secret series with SBS. And that was going to them and asking them to find out why my mum had been put into Fremantle prison as an 18-year-old. My mum's stolen generation. She'd been in and out of institutions her entire life. I knew that she'd gone to jail, but she made me promise that I wouldn't look into it until after she died because she said that there's things that they'll say about me that's not true and I don't want you to have that opinion of me. And, yeah, so she passed away seven years ago. I'd been sitting with this for a very, very long time. The opportunity came up to be involved in the show massive leap of faith. It was terrifying. It was an absolute emotional roller coaster. But ultimately, they, they gave me the truth of why mum ended up in a jail. And she was involved in a violent assault. The judge wanted to lock her up and throw away the key and said the only reason he wasn't sending her away for life was because of her young age at 18. Sentenced her to five years. Uh, she did three years. She turned her life around in jail. She was taken under the wing of the matron who saw her. At, she was the same age as the matron's daughter and she took her under a wing and they formed this almost like mother-daughter relationship to the point where when I was born, mum would take me back to the jail to visit the matron. And I got to learn all of this stuff and also discovered a grandfather who I'd never met on you anything about and he was a child migrant. So they gave me all this information about this grandfather who my mum knew very little about, definitely didn't know that he was a child migrant. Yeah, so it was absolutely profound and incredible. Okay, well, I think that's all we've got time for, so please join me in thanking Kirsty Helen and Michelle. Thank you. Listening to the Walkley Talks podcast with me, Claire Fletcher. You can find links to all the stories mentioned in this discussion in our show notes. Sign up to our newsletter at walkleys.com/slash/subscribe, and you'll be the first to learn about our new episodes, events, and other opportunities. If you enjoyed this episode of Walkley Talks, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app. And while you're there, please take a moment to rate us. This podcast is produced by Kevin Suarez with help from the two SER studios in Sydney, Australia.